Hi, everyone, and welcome to Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. I'm Kaylee, and this week we are talking to Cindy Darnell. She's a sex therapist and also the author of the recently released book, Sex When You Don't Feel Like It. This conversation has all kinds of useful information like how to talk to partners about desire, determining the motivations you have for engaging in sex, and all of it is super focused on pleasure, which I think is very cool. If you are interested in receiving a free copy of Cindy's book, head over to our Instagram for more information on an exclusive giveaway we are hosting. Enjoy the episode. So, Cindy, thank you for joining us today. It's lovely to have you. It's lovely to be head. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Of course. Anytime, anytime. So usually we start off uh, asking our guests what their pronouns and sexuality are. Mm -hmm. So my sexuality is uh, yet to be determined (laughs) still. Love it. And uh, because it's always in flux. You know, mm-hmm. if you had asked mm-hmm. me at one stage in my life, I would have said I was probably heterosexual. If you asked me at another stage, I would have said I was probably bisexual. If you asked me at another stage, I probably would have said celibate. Mm. If you had asked me at another stage, I would have said meh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, and the stage I'm currently at is it really changes. It, it really is a, it's a person by person thing. These yeah. Days. Yeah. I, just, I, Very I cannot, I cannot categorize it one way or the other. I generally use she, her pronouns probably more out of habit than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Increasingly now that I'm almost on the other side of menopause, I do wonder <laughs> if that is even still relevant. Not that I think menopause has anything to do with, you know, femininity necessarily mm, but right. I have noticed and I discussed this actually with a couple of my colleagues post-pandemic not that we're post but you know we're on the <laughs> other side of lockdown let's say yeah post-lockdown a lot of people in my queer orbit not in my mm. hetero orbit but in my queer orbit started to question their relationship to gender because of the lockdown, because they weren't mm. having to get up and get dressed in whatever outfit every day, put on lipstick or put on pants yeah. or put on socks or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of us spent two years in sweatpants, which mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. very gender neutral, right? So right. I'm <laughs> still what, in sweatpants. <laughs> right, you know. So... I think what's really happened, certainly to this particular cohort of queer friends, is it has just really lifted the lid on the degree to which gender is relevant anymore in our Mm. in our capacity to self-identify. Obviously, for some people, it's exceptionally relevant. But what I've noticed with myself is that I I'm less phased about my own personal pronouns I recognize that pronouns are very important to other people Mm -hmm. so this is not me saying they don't matter for anyone but for me I'm less I'm just less attached to she her and I use she her out of habit yeah not not because I particularly give a shit personally I don't (laughs) people can call me what they like um so sexuality tbd pronouns tbd (laughs) got it (laughs) 
(laughs) Is there a term for fluid sexuality like there is for gender fluid? Do we have that? I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe, maybe pansexual, but then that implies that there's attraction to all things. But then... I mean, and then asexual is a, a, no no attraction to anything. So, I mean, depending, obviously, there are scales <laughs> there too. But Polysexual? Um, like multiple things, but not yeah, all the things? I don't know. I mean, like for me personally, I just, I, I, I find it very labor intensive to have to yeah. granulate it down. I recognize, again, the value in identity labels for those for whom community matters. I think it's powerfully important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, at the age I am, and I have that age privilege of being able to say, I don't need that. You know, if I Mm -hmm. were in my teens or in my early 20s and I was in the process of finding out who I was in that way, I think those community networks matter and identity labels are a really important way of making community connections. As one gets older... Let me say, as I got older, <laughs> it became less important to me yeah. what I was called or what people even fucking thought of me. Yeah. I, I mostly don't give a shit. You know? <laughs> I, I care what my friends think and I care what yeah. the people I care about think. Yeah. But the broader community, the broader network of bigots, mm-hmm. I don't give a shit what they think. <laughs> That's a, that's a good <laughs> sexuality. Don't give a fuck. Right. So for me, it's like, you know, I care about humanity at a, at a you know, esoteric level. But if people are going to be bigoted towards me because I talk about sex or because I, yeah. you know, whatever, then they are not, they are not the people whose opinions I'm going to let sway how yeah. I feel about them. Mm-hmm. Of course. Oh, man, community. I feel like we could do a full episode on this. <laughs> I feel like we, we have. But my communities so. tend to be made up primarily of sort of folks who color outside the square in terms of sex <laughs> and gender anyway. So right. I am accustomed to hanging out with communities like that. It's not like I live in a, in a network of, you know, what I call the deep heterosexual people <laughs> who are very invested in their heterosexuality. <laughs> To the point that it causes them pain, you know. Yeah, mm. I don't hang out with a lot of people like that. I know a handful of them, but they're not my close. It's kind of right? shocking when you do, right? When you're used to hanging out with a lot of queer yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because you know that, de- and I call them the deep heterosexuals because it's 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 an extremely painful place to live. Yeah, bound, and it, this is not to say that having an attraction to an opposite gender is bad. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But a profound commitment to heteronormativity is excruciating. Yeah, it is. It doesn't serve anybody. It's a fucking prison. It doesn't even serve straight people. Yeah, totally. So, so, yeah. Yeah, patriarchy be like that sometimes. (laughs) Um, Thank you for sharing that. That was very enlightening, and we only got – that was only the first question. So (laughs) – um, I warned you. <laughs> no, it was good. It was, I'm, I'm invested. Um, so I, you know, I know now you're this prolific writer of sex and, and all of that, but, um, growing up, what was your sex education? Like, did you get anything at school or from your family or, or what was that like? Uh, my 
family were very complicated, but mm. they did have pretty liberal view. Well, the women in my family had pretty liberal views about sex. I remember my mum when I was about four years of age and we used to go and visit these two guys called Steve and Bruce, I think, and they had a water bed. <laughs> and I used to love going to visit them because they used to let me play on their waterbed and then they would show me where the valve was and they let me stick the hose in and it would have to come up through the window and it was this whole thing <laughs> to fill up the waterbed. And I thought that was amazing. And it wasn't That's until awesome. much later that I was like, Oh, oh, I know what was going on with Stephen <laughs> Bruce. So I just, but it didn't, like, it was never a thing, you know. And then I also remember with my grandma when I was about 15 in the 80s, this was, and Boy George had just sort of sprung onto the scene. And that was back in the day when Boy George was, you know, wearing sort of these long plaits and lots of makeup and the caftans and stuff. And I remember saying to my grandma, it's, he a boy or a girl? And my grandma in the 80s saying to me, does it matter? Ooh. Nice. <laughs> and, nice, um, Grandma. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, they were, I mean, they weren't like, you know, sex radicals by any stretch, but they just had these kind of strangely very quiet progressive views about mm-hmm. sex and gender. So that was, that was on that side. And then at school, um, growing up in Australia, we did have sex education. It was a thing. Mm. But it was pretty rudimentary. It was very kind of where the babies come from. Yeah. There was no pleasure. There was no clitoris. There was no yeah. nothing fun. Although I do remember my ninth grade teacher telling us that she had an orgasm while delivering her first child. And I was like, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and she said that the process for her, the process of childbirth was orgasmic. Then she played a video of, of a woman giving birth vaginally, and I just went, What I did that, that. Have an orgasm? <laughs> well, I she was screaming. Probably. I just, all I saw was the vagina and the baby coming out, and I just thought, <laughs> I am never going to do that. And I never did. <laughs> and I, I have like- no regrets. Still to this day. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be shocked if parents got like upset about a teacher saying that they had an orgasm while giving birth because they'd be like, don't encourage them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the differences perhaps between Australia and the US. <laughs> yeah. you, you would have to like that. I mean, maybe in this political climate where everyone's a little bit more highly strung that you <laughs> might get some people offended. But in Australian culture, that's not especially outrageous That's i mean it's nice. not it's not to say that it's common but yeah australians are very frank like our, our manner of speech is quite direct mm. um which is one of the big cultural differences i think between australia and the u.s is that we do just yeah say it as we <laughs> as we see it which i think lands on americans to be quite abrasive at times um but it also <laughs> means that teachers will say things like you know it's okay to have an orgasm on your baby's head and people go, okay. <laughs> <You> know, so. <laughs> Is that how she but, said I mean, it? I don't think, I don't think that, that happens a lot, you know, but it's no. in context. It happened to you. So. It happened to me. So, yeah. <laughs> so look, but that said, you know, it's not like I grew up in this sexual utopia. I didn't. I grew up sure. with the same kind of weird messages about being fat and being short and being hairy and being whatever, you know, all of that same old stuff that I grew up mm-hmm. with. 
um, if anything, I think Australia is very, uh, very body negative, extremely mm. body negative, much more than the US. Um, and I'm not sure why. Really? I, wow. Yeah, yeah I think there's a, <laughs> the, there is a lot of celebration of diversity of bodies in the US and diversity of colours of bodies in the US. In Australian mm. television and Australian mainstream media, you only see slim white people. Oh. Yeah. See, I would say that it's still pretty bad in the US. So for its- Yeah, I mean, compared to Australia, it is it is multi, multi, multi-dimensional. The, the, the mm. depiction of aesthetics in Australia is very limited. Or it was when I left. Maybe it's changed right. in the last few Well, that gives me some hope. That's nice. (laughs) Awesome. So did you grow up religious at all? It doesn't really sound like you did, but did you have any religious messages too? No, I think my grandma, she was uh, from Latvia, so they are Mm. Lutheran. And I think she took me to church three times, mostly because she felt obliged to not because (laughs) of any profound thing. Um, But, you know, the Latvians, Latvia was the last country in Europe to get Christianized. Mm-hmm. So the Latvian version of Christianity is very pagan. So um, they only became Christians, I think, in the 1500s. So prior to that, they were still leaping over fires and, you know, fornicating in the shrubs. And so, <laughs> right. um, Doing a bunch of witchy so, shit. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my grandma was sort of of that type. Her mother, uh, who also immigrated, they all came after the Second World War. Uh, my great grandmother was a tea leaf reader. Oh, so it, I I had that kind of witchy lineage coming straight down the line. That's so cool. So I didn't that get cool. I didn't get a lot of the heavy religious stuff. My mum was married to a guy who was pretending to be a Mormon for a while. Pretending? <laughs> yeah, he was only pretending. It was not real. Oh wow, uh, that's so strange. To what end? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, we had the Book of Mormon sitting on the bookshelf and I remember <laughs> picking it up and looking at it when I was maybe about 10 and not really understanding it and saying to my mum, what is this? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> and this is the man she was married to. So, I mean, that speaks more about their relationship. Interesting. But, um, so, yeah, he, he kind of, I think he liked the idea perhaps of polygamy. I think mm. that was the extent to which his, he was interested in becoming a Mormon. Um, yeah, but again, <laughs> like that, the the Mormon thing is not. <laughs> he would, mm. as far as I know, he's the only Australian fake Mormon I've ever met. <laughs> I just I don't know any other Mormons in Australia. I guess the Mormon missionaries don't really get to Australia that much. Um, <laughs> no, I mean they do come, they try, but they are ridiculed. You know, people just laugh at them in the same way that we laugh at Starbucks. It's just. Like, yeah. <laughs> what is this yeah <laughs> I, I wish we did more of that because honestly it's uh, laughing at Starbucks <laughs> no at Mormons or just uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we laugh at Mormons there's like a whole Broadway do musical it? to do that yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That, that you're right. absolutely right <laughs> it's real good <laughs> well maybe good I just fun. personally need to laugh at Mormons more oh I just watched a very upsetting um documentary on the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, which I are the ones that, that are polygamists. Well, uh, I didn't watch it, but I saw it advertised. 
Yeah. Was it good? It'll make you sad. It was good, but it's also like abuse of women and children. I love being sad. Not fun. <laughs> sad all the time. Anyway, oh. uh, I'm done talking about Mormons now. I don't I'm believe done. you. <laughs> so, can you give us maybe like a little elevator pitch of your of your book just to kind of kick off this conversation? Well, I wrote it because <clears throat> it's the number one reason that couples primarily and individuals occasionally, but mostly couples will seek out the services of a sex professional, sex Mm -hmm. therapist, sex coach, intimacy uh, consultant, whatever you want to say, because it is so common, so common in fact that I would say that in an intimate partnership you can count on it, Mm -hmm. you can expect that you're going to have a mismatched libido and that the it is not an indication that the relationship is rocky. It's not an indication necessarily even that there is anything wrong with the relationship. But if it's not addressed, it can affect the relationship. It can destroy otherwise good relationships. And so, you know, what was presented traditionally in couples therapy was, you know, if you build the intimacy and you learn to communicate then the good sex will just flow naturally after that because good sex happens when you love somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. That's mm-hmm. complete bullshit. You can love somebody with all your heart and not have a decent sexual connection with them. And you can have a profoundly you know, intoxicating sexual connection with somebody you just met on a train for five minutes. <laughs> yep. And you don't even know their name. You know. <laughs> And so because in our culture we get these two things confused, we get love and sex confused because most of us, whether we were brought up secular or religious, we have drunk the Kool-Aid that love and sex are a hand and a glove. And most of us do not experience the two together in that way. Occasionally we might, and if we do, it'll only be for a period of time. It won't be as a permanent state. It's Mm -hmm. in a constant flux. And so I talk about this in the book, that sex is more like water than it is like any other kind of element, like stone, like fire. It's like water because it heats up, it cools down, it freezes, it dries up, it gets into the little cracks, it appears where you didn't even think it was going to. It will, you know, cause mold if you let it sit there for too long. (laughs) If it's stagnant, it becomes toxic. Like, you know, all of it's so profoundly, you know, water and sexuality share a very similar you know, esoteric function, I yeah. think, in our lives as a way of being able to, to understand it, how it functions. And yet, with humans, we don't spend any time learning about how it works because from the minute we start asking questions about sex, we are simply told it's natural. When you meet the one, it will just work out. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. And that's not true. It's complete lies. Yeah. Yeah, I know going into reading the book, I have a lot of the messages I got were very much like that, but with the added religion on top of it. So it was like, you should never have sexual desire for anyone else except for your future husband and not until you're married. And then all of a sudden you'll just have perfect sex forever (laughs) until you both die. (laughs) Yeah, so many of us get these messages, whether, you know, even in non-religious backgrounds, yeah. That message still seeps in and it seeps in through fairy tales. It seeps mm-hmm. in through rom coms. It seeps in through Disney. It seeps yeah. in through, um, you know, romance novels. 
rom-coms are one that I, uh, yeah. I don't know why, but recently I've been going back and watching all the rom-coms from like the early aughts and like, it's really interesting to see the messages that are being conveyed in that, which is so, so much of what you just said, just yeah. messages about what is, you know, like, oh, there's sex is natural. And um, if you have a good relationship or find your love, it'll just be perfect and you'll just perfectly fall into sync. <laughs> and yeah. like always orgasm at the same time. Yeah, all <laughs> of that stuff. And always the, you know, the guy is an idiot and the girl is the clever one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has to prove himself to her and then she finally acquiesces. But it's always ultimately about his desire because he wants her. She doesn't want him. No yeah. one ever asks her what she wants. Why would she they? She's surprised, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> just, and it's just, it's so direct through all the narratives. It's always... Yeah. Yeah. And people, you know, don't learn enough or know enough a lot of times to question that if that's what you're constantly bombarded with from birth, right? So yeah. they wind up thinking the problem is them. Like, well, yeah. clearly it works this way for everyone else. So I just <laughs> suck. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Long time to unlearn all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So I think you kind of like touched on this before when you said that people, you know, come in, what's your actual, uh, it sounds like you have a, a practice where you work with couples and people. What, what's your title for that? So in the U S I'm called a sex therapist. Okay. Uh, and a sexologist. Uh -huh. depending. Um, in Australia, I was a psychotherapist. I trained as a psychotherapist and cool. I worked as a psychotherapist slash sex therapist for okay. many, many years. Um, and in the U.S., I don't practice psychotherapy anymore just for licensing reasons. You yeah. can't do the transfer easily. That's so stupid. here I work. <laughs> well, yeah. So here I only do sex and relationships work. Cool. Um, and, you know, I'm a sexologist, a sex therapist, a consultant. Uh, you know, That's cool. I call myself all kinds of things, yeah. So, but my... my clinical background is that I, I was a psychotherapist for many many years uh -huh. and I also trained as a sex therapist I trained in both um but in the U.S. I only do sex and relationship work I still have clients in Australia who yeah. I see online who I see for psychotherapy cool um but in the U.S. my clients are all sex and relationships cool so I is that uh, being a, a sex therapist? Is that kind of what inspired you to write this book? Can you tell us a little bit about what that journey was like? Yeah, I mean, it was based really in, you know, that I got into sex therapy because I initially it was because I had an interest in the machinations of sex. I was sort of interested in the in the carnal aspect of it, and yeah, you know, I. I wanted to have a lot of sex. I wanted to talk about it a lot. And I was always fascinated at how at how talking about sex made people uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable. And and people had, there was this sort of implicit agreement that sex was a good idea, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And certainly nobody wanted to talk about it in meaningful ways. Yeah. And then when I was doing my therapy training, there was, you know, lip service paid to couples therapy. There was a lot of training around, you know, LGBT identity work and discrimination and trauma. But there was very little about pleasure and very little about touch, very little about the relationship between the body and pleasure and 
its impact on relationships. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I started to go, how is it that people are graduating from therapy programs around the world and they don't know how to talk about sex with their clients? This is not good, right? Because a lot of therapists, couples therapists, psychotherapists, and frankly, even a lot of sex therapists don't really understand how to talk about the machinations of sex in such a way that impacts how people behave in their bedroom. Yeah. Because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of sort of implicit stuff people don't want to get to. Mm, People don't want to, you know, be, people don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to talk about sex, you're going to get uncomfortable. That is the first thing that we all have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. (laughs) When people are like, I don't want it to be awkward. Well, bad luck. It's going to be. (laughs) It just is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And after you've done it one, two, three times, guess what? It's going to feel less awkward. By Mm -hmm. the time you've done it the 40th time, you'll just be like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. (laughs) But this anxiety, this collective anxiety of I don't want to feel awkward. You can't avoid it. It's part of life. Anything that's yeah. valuable, you're not going to be good at the first time you do it. The first time you brush your teeth, you're not very good at it. The first time you try to tie your shoes, you're not very good at it. The first time you yeah. ride a bike, you're not very good at it. The first time you try to sing a song, you're not very good at it. The first time you play guitar, the first time you make an omelet, you're going to fuck it up. Yeah. Come on. But we just but we don't, <laughs> Yeah. We don't give ourselves that room with sex because oh, it's sex. It's this magical, right. weird thing. Yeah. You know? There's like weird status stuff around being bad at sex as well. Like, yeah. again, it's sort of displayed to us like it's natural. It'll just come, you'll figure it out. And like, um, that's like half true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other half yeah, yeah, is that yeah. you have to work on it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, um, You know, so my inspiration for writing the book was, you know, I didn't get this training in therapy school. I didn't even get it when I was doing my sexology degree. A lot of it, the sexology degree was about, you know, the the machinations of, you know, performance, erectile dysfunction and anorgasmia and vaginismus and all these grotesque names for things that, um, you know, now I can talk to other clinicians and we can all sort of sit there and stroke our chin. <laughs> but, you know, you're talking to real people who are really freaking out about something that's happening in their relationship and you use these big fancy words. And what they want to know is how do I stop feeling so shit? How do I yeah. stop feeling so terrified of my body? How do I communicate with my partner in such a way that assures them I am really into them, but I just don't know how to make it better. That's what people want. Yeah. They don't want pills and ointments and diagnoses. They want to know how to resolve these issues in such a way and also to know that they're normal. Yeah. And because like everybody else, like all of us, they've grown up with rom-coms and porn and bad sex ed and all of the other hoo-ha that we've all grown up with. They don't know anything about anything either. So, you know, my interest became, all right, well, I'm going to really go and dig out the research about, you know, how is it that our bodies function from a science point of view, but also from a pleasure point of view. I really, really went out of my way to find the science that helps us understand pleasure. Uh And then 
from there, I was like, all right, here's the science, here's the pleasure. Now I understand how and why things function and don't function the way they do. What do we do about it? Mm -hmm. And that's why the second half of the book is all, you know, the science applied. It's not just me pontificating and stroking my chin about what I think is a great idea. (laughs) I I love a great idea, by the way, but good ideas are not enough. We have to be able to put them into practice. And so the second half of the book is all about this is how the science works. We learn about how the brain works here. You might notice it behaving like this, but in chapter eight, we're going to talk about how you can you know, experience your body differently. And so when you have a reaction that maybe makes you feel awkward or makes you feel less than or makes you feel whatever you feel, that you can understand why it's happening and trust that your body knows what to do provided you keep moving it in a direction that allows it to have its full Mm -hmm. full expansion. And I talk about this idea of a bird in a cage, like a bird in a cage is still a bird, Mm -hmm. but if it can't spread its wings and fly because the environment won't allow, it's still a bird and it still has wings, Mm -hmm. but it never gets to really understand how its body functions because it's never given permission to fly. And so this book is like the equivalent of the erotic permission to fly. If you've been a bird in a cage your whole life and you don't know what it's like to fly, if I open the cage door and you come out, you might initially be like, whoa, I don't know if I like this. Then I'm like, okay, go back in the cage for a bit. That's cool. And then you might just stick your little beak out (laughs) and maybe stick the tip of your wing out. And then, you know, slowly, slowly, and then you'll come out and just sit on the perch for a bit and go like, oh, yeah, all right, I feel okay about this. And then eventually, you know, you'll take flight. And that might take time, and that's okay. But you're going to feel awkward in the process of doing that because going from living in a cage to being a flying bird, that's a big transition. Yeah. (laughs) And it takes time, and you'll you'll be okay, but just know that you're going to feel awkward for some of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you get. If you want to have sex, you have to face the awkwardness. But um, I love that analogy um, and just the amount of care you have to show people. Like, it's okay if you just want to stick a little bit of your beak out. Like, you don't have to (laughs) open the cage and run out and you know, yeah. migrate with the other geese somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's probably better that you don't do that because if you freak yourself out, you know, if you freak your nervous system out and you jump out too fast, too far, then you might, you know, send your little yeah, body that into could be shock also and then you'll go back into the cage and you'll never come out and that would be terrible. So, you know, yeah. slowly, slowly. <laughs> For sure. And, and it's indicative of, I, I think one of the things I love most about the book is how gentle it is. I know Kaylee and I were talking about that and how just like accepting it is, you know, you don't have to do anything that freaks you out, but if you're looking to expand your horizons, here's the material and, you know, yeah. take it at your own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, you know, we've already talked a little bit about how much expectation there is around sex and how frightening that can be. So, you know, to realize that you're allowed to take it at your own pace and you don't have to be anything or enjoy any specific thing or um, be a certain way is, is really freeing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, for me, I, I was very moved by learning about desire and 
I, I mean, I wrote down the attraction plus obstacles equals excitement because I think that's so much of the lie that sex is natural when like, I mean, yeah, you can figure it out. Yeah, you can just naturally feel desire sometimes, but it is something that like takes effort to understand. And uh, one of the things that when I was reading, I just had to put the book down for a while was when I read the part that was like, why do you have sex? I read that and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I've really been thinking about that a lot yeah. lately. And it's, it's like, in order to have, I think, a fulfilling sex life, whatever that means for you, you, I think, do have to put some effort into it, which yeah. goes against what we're taught when we grow up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and especially for women that it's this passive experience um, and that when you meet the right person and they just take you on a ride and you just get to, you know, be done. Yeah. And, you know, that's cool if that is really, really ultimately what you want, but you don't get to make that decision because you can't be bothered thinking about it. Yeah. That's not mm. that's not an answer, you know. Yeah. You only get to make that decision if you have really done your homework and come full circle and decided – yeah, actually, this is really what I want. I've I've tried all the other things, and this is mm -hmm. this is my jam, you know. So yeah, putting in the effort to to again, and this is part of the awkwardness. Is like, well, what what is my motivation for sex? Why am I doing this? Because uh, you know, in the book, and I talk about this too. You don't have to. Like, if you really don't want to have sex, and I have met a, a people in my you know therapeutically uh, who have just been like, I really don't want to do it with anybody not with my partner not with myself like nobody I just don't mm. want to have sex with anyone at all ever mm. and they have done the homework they've done all the things and they still say yep I just don't want to do it I say fine that's okay mm -hmm. but for the people who are like well all right let me just sit with this question let me let me find out what my motivation is and it's highly likely it's got nothing to do with love mm -hmm. it might yeah. have something to do with love but for a lot of people their motivations are things that often are a little unsavory it could be things like i want to feel good about myself i i'm you know i want to have sex so it will affirm that i'm hot <laughs> i want to have mm. sex because uh i want to feel powerful for a lot of people, it's about gender affirmation, and that includes cis people, particularly cis men, who pretend mm. that they don't need gender affirmation, who will get all pissy <laughs> about trans people needing gender <laughs> affirmation, when actually, for the vast majority of straight cis men who will say to women, did you come? Was it amazing? That is a gender-affirming question. They want to be affirmed in their masculinity, right? So that's their motivation. Right. And that's fine. I'm not saying that that's not a good reason. It's a perfectly acceptable reason, but we have to be real with ourselves. We have to be honest because if we want our sex to be satisfying, if we want it to be nourishing and tasty yeah. and delicious, we have to be able to at least with ourselves be honest about this is why I'm doing it and this is what really matters to me because then if you have a partner who doesn't want to affirm your agenda or who doesn't want to you know, tell you that you're hot and gorgeous or who doesn't even know that that's what you're expecting and so they say nothing mm -hmm. and then you say mm -hmm. nothing and you're both lying there saying nothing. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, well, that wasn't very good. Yeah, no, it wasn't very good. <laughs> oh, well. 
you know. <laughs> so this is how we have to navigate because we have a much better chance of getting our satisfaction addressed when we know what our criteria is. Yeah. And you don't yeah. know what your criteria is if you don't know why you're there in the first place. It's, right. It's so hard yeah. to pinpoint that, though. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your book, which has like a, a ton of bullet points about why you might have sex. And it, it was really interesting. I mean, a lot of these are ones I hadn't even thought of. And a lot of ones I saw were like, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. But I don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the thing. And so and you don't have to admit it out here in the public sphere. But what you do have to do is admit it, admit it to yourself. Yeah. Mm. And that's the first part of it, you know, is admitting it to yourself that your truth is I want to have sex because I want I want validation I want sex because I want to feel powerful I want sex because I want to feel dirty I want sex because I want to feel like a naughty little slut like whatever it is and there's uh-huh. probably multiple reasons right there's yeah. not just one and it's going to change yep. at different times of your life it's going to change with different people different people yeah. Will yeah. bring out different things in you uh-huh. so don't think that it's consistently going to be I always have sex because I want to you know, um, relieve stress or something. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, sometimes it will be that. And then also your motivation for solo sex will be different, very likely than partner sex. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to have a threesome or a group thing, or, you know, you want to go to an orgy or whatever, your motivation is probably going to be different again. Yeah. And so this, again, this is this idea that, you know, when we when we find the one, everything's just fabulous. It's like, oh my goodness, that yeah. doesn't even begin the conversation. I know. When it doesn't even we scratch have the to surface. ask ourselves the questions first. Yeah. You know, and so this is what makes it textured and layered. And I think also that's why people don't want to talk about this stuff because they're like, whoa, this is too heavy. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's where, you know, sex is where our unresolved stuff goes to get processed. Now, this is the psychotherapist in me talking. <laughs> I know this because that is what sex is for a lot of people. Even the people yeah. who say, I just want to have pleasure. Even that is about the the capacity to experience oneself as free of stress and free of shame and free of, you know, burdens. And again, that's fine, but we have to be honest with ourselves at a minimum so we can start moving towards something that resembles satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Us just having a free psychotherapy session right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is funny stuff, you know, and like I I love like, you know, I listen to sort of folks like Brene Brown and I love how deep she goes and how she thinks about things and she Mm -hmm. doesn't talk about this stuff either, you know. no. So she is, skims the surface of shame, but uh, there's a lot of yeah. sexual shame. I'm sure people feel right, you know, and I just and, uh, you know, Oprah and all these other kind of, you know, big thinker type voices who have a lot of clout um, who do wonderful work educating the community for free. You know, amazing. And I'm so mm-hmm. grateful that these people exist. And still, nobody talks about sex in these kinds of meaningful ways. And I think I yeah. hope that this is the next you know, the next wave, you know. Esther Perel does a little bit, but even she still couches it in the context of relationships. Mm, we have yeah. to be able to talk about it as a freestanding thing um, yeah. that exists in relationship to ourselves and then in our relationship to others. Yeah, totally. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about relationship to others. I know the, the first often hardest step, like you said, is admitting to yourself certain things about your sexual desire and all of that. That's hard enough. And then it gets complicated when you put multiple people together who all have their own desires and ways of communicating. And, uh, you know, lots of things can get lost in translation. But I really liked all of the case studies in the book that sort of talked about that miscommunication. Like, oh, but when they actually talked about it, this was the real issue, you know, the other thing wasn't the issue. Um, so do you have any, I don't know, tips or, or insight on how you can better talk with your partners about sex and desire, especially if they seem mismatched or, um, I guess, different from each other? Listen more and talk less. Mm. If there was one tip, it would be that. Yeah. I think a lot of people misunderstand the that communication is talking. Mm. I think a lot of people think communication is, I'm going to set boundaries and I'm going to say no and I'm going to you know, do all this stuff. And all of that is great, except for when it's not. Mm. And if we don't know how to listen, then someone's talking to you, telling you a thing, and you're not listening because you're just waiting for your turn to talk and set a boundary, mm -hmm. then, you're, then you don't have a connection. Yeah, you're not really communicating. Right. People feel you're going to get the best out of people if they feel like you care about them. Mm. And one of the greatest ways to show that you care about somebody is hearing what's going on for them, even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't like it. Yeah. So part of being a good partner is being able to hear somebody's experience of themselves and not make it about you. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds hard. I've got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally how I pay my rent, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll Venmo you a few hundred bucks after this. It's clearly. Uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting. Something I, I picked up uh, when I, I got into like the BDSM scene around college was uh, how to communicate about sex in a kind of I, I don't know what the right word is like removed way. Like you can kind of communicate about it. Uh, it's sometimes easier to communicate about it before it happens or after it happens. Cause in the mm -hmm. moment when you're having sex, uh, lots of feelings and uh, like excitement and hormones and all of that are flying. It's, I find it kind of hard to communicate, but something I usually ask all or most of my partners after we have sex is what their favorite part was and what their least favorite part was. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the answers really surprise me, but I can also tell you know, if we're going to have sex again, or if, you know, there's like a future for this partner, if they ask me that question back too, because mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they don't, a lot of times they don't. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. So I guess you're not that interested in how it was for me. Cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. And we can demonstrate to even, this is true, even for friends, like this is not just for, you know, sexual partners and lovers, mm. but just people in your orbit demonstrating love is it, it, it's an active practice that is mm. done through knowing when to just shut up mm. and <laughs> when to invite people in to to you know to participate in their inner world yeah so few people do that yeah so few people do that so so many people are all me, 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 me. I think I feel I want my feelings, my about, you know, you must validate me, blah, 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 yeah. blah. 
and I, I think that in part the reason that we have so much disconnection and, and so many young people especially feeling so lonely and disconnected is because there's not enough emphasis on learning how to connect and learning how to connect mm. means sometimes putting your own shit aside for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's so true. Like, it is really hard to do that. And so, you know, when you're saying about people who are not interested in your experience, when you've said to them, tell me about your inner world, how was yeah. it for you? And that you genuinely want to hear about how they experience themselves in the moment. Mm. And then they demonstrate that they're not interested in your inner world. That's terribly painful. Yeah. Yeah, luckily I've kind of learned to just not take it so personally be like, well, that person might not be a great partner. But yeah, right. when you are in a relationship with someone for a year, five years, 10 years, and you're, you're committed to them and you love them, but you're having this trouble connecting. Yeah, it's definitely painful. And yeah, hard, but even hard among hard friends, thing. it's painful. Like, you know, there are some friends who, who you know, the, the love only goes one way and you mm. be pouring yourself into the relationship and, you know, they will take, take, take. And yeah, at some point you're like, I can't, I can't keep doing this, you know. Of course. Um, and so this, this extends across romantic partnerships and, and friendship partnerships too because it, the skills are the same. Whether you're single yeah. or partnered, you still need these skills no matter what. And I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I can't learn relationship skills until I'm in a relationship. And it's like, guess what? You live in a community of people. There are people all around you, your neighbours, <laughs> yeah. the person yeah. who drives the bus the person at the checkout at the supermarket, they're all humans. Have a yeah. practice with them. Like, just <laughs> ask them about their inner world. Like, you know, yeah. just little conversations. Totally. That's how it starts. It doesn't have to be that you're sitting there waiting for your, you know, gender neutral You're one person to come by, people. yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're so right. I think I think a lot of people also internalize that this, this one person is going to come along and be your everything. And Kaylee and I have done a, a lot of talking about how that's just impossible and yeah. um yeah the need to you know practice these things in other types of relationships and uh sort of tear down expectations that friendships have to be this one way and yeah. you know your marriage has to be this other way and um mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely very important uh, I'm, I'm just agreeing with you <laughs> basically yes what you said yeah um <laughs> Jen, Jen is singing your praises. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm just repeating Very what good. you said in the, in yeah, the a no. less less good way than you said it. So. <laughs> no, but these are the things that I think you know. When people say, "How do we communicate?" I, I, you know, speak less, listen more, invite your own. You know, be curious about your partners or friends in a world. Yeah, and yeah. and stop making everything about you. It's not. It's not about you. Most of what other people experience in the world has got nothing to do with you. It affects you sometimes, but it's not about you. It's it's so nice to hear this being talked about in a way that's like, yeah, learn about this. Take the time to be vulnerable and connect with yourself and connect with other people and put in the work to have fulfilling yeah. relationships. It's just, it's just so refreshing to hear that instead of like, Oh, you're having problems communicating with your partner. What's wrong with you? Or like, what's wrong with your relationship? So it's, it's really nice to hear. It just feels very affirming because relationships yeah. be complicated. Yeah, and it just, 
Right, you know, and before we sort of diagnose people as toxic or narcissists or, you know, red flags and all this language that you see thrown around on Instagram, it's like just everybody just calm down, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, before we start pointing fingers, let's go this way first. Yeah. Look, look inside first. Look at yeah. what you're bringing, what you're contributing. And then also we see it in the context of larger power structures, race, gender, you know, economic privilege. Yes, all of those things matter too. Mm -hmm. And still, we, in an intimate one-to-one -one level, there are things we can do, there are things we can leverage around being kind, extending kindness to people, even if we are, are you know, terminating a friendship with somebody, we can still be kind. We don't have to drag people through the mud mm -hmm. or mm. call them this, that and the other and label them with various diagnoses. And, you know, I find a lot of this um, Instagram therapy very, very discombobulating for yeah. meaningful mm. relationships. Have you heard of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult? I think I have, They're good. and I haven't gotten around to listening to They're, it. Yet. They have an episode about Instagram therapists. You would probably like it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You should okay. listen to that yeah. one. It's it's really I interesting. Will to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Enjoy. I just listened I, to I, it too. That was the first thing I thought of. Yeah. And, okay. Um, yeah, how it's just impossible to obviously do therapy in like thirty second little sound bites. <laughs> yeah. Right, and yeah, and I think it just because you know. So many people have learned about attachment from Instagram and they've learned about, mm. you know, various personality disorders from Instagram. And because it's all taken out of context, people will label themselves or their partners or each other as so-and-so is toxic, so-and-so has got such a disorder, so-and-so mm. is a sex addict, so on, you know, I've, a, I've got this, you know, I've, I'm a love addict, like all this stuff. And it's just like, oh. God, and I look at it sometimes and just go, why do I bother? This <laughs> <laughs> is just so unhelpful, you yeah. know. But in those moments, yeah. people want to, what they're trying to do is make themselves feel better, and I get that. Mm. But you don't feel better by throwing other people under the bus and yeah. making up diagnoses about them. Like it just. Yeah. 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 Definitely a way to create disconnection like you were saying like yeah. if you can make it so that the other person is bad and did bad things yeah um make it, it makes you feel you. a little bit better but yeah. yeah yeah for sure so cindy i think we probably need to start wrapping up but where can people find your work and buy your book so my website is the home of all of the things that I offer to the world, which is my name, Cindy Darnell, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. There are links to booksellers there on my website, but all of the major online retailers are carrying the book. If you live in a town where you want to support a small independent bookshop, I would encourage you to ask the bookshop to bring the book in. It probably won't be sitting on the shelves in a small little indie bookshop, but <laughs> Um, the shops are able to get generous discounts if they buy awesome. you know, five or ten copies. So um, obviously then you have to wait. It's not next day delivery like certain other places. Um, but if you want to support the indie bookshops that you encourage folks to do, that's how you would do it. Um, 
and 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 I have some online classes on my website as well. I'm going to update that with some new things. And I have a podcast also called The Erotic Philosopher where I interview other sex and relationships folks about, you know, meaty topics, things that I like to talk about. Uh, and I'm on Instagram. I'm one of those Instagram therapists, but hopefully not a, hopefully not a cult leader. I don't think I am. I'm too cynical to be a cult leader. And, um, and, and I think, yeah. I would that's, join your cult. That, that's, <laughs> That's it. I, my my website's the place to go. I've got a newsletter. Cool. You know, stuff. I've got nice. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Find Cindy online. She seems to be in a lot of places. And um, we'll be doing a giveaway of her book as well on our Instagram. So follow us on Instagram. Yeah. Hooray. And then you can get a chance to read sex when you don't feel like it. Or just go buy the book. Do that. <laughs> yeah. Also that. Do both also, of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can buy one and then get one and give give it to your mom. Hey, that's a good yeah. idea. Give it to all your friends <laughs> and your mom. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Cindy, for joining us. This is an incredible conversation. I'm so excited You're very right welcome. now. <laughs> I am very glad I had a fun time chatting to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. Again, don't forget to go check out our Instagram for that giveaway. The handle is Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. Uh, there's no O or U in the shouldn't, so that's S-E-X-E-D-S-H-L-D-N-T-S-U-C-K. <laughs> you can get all the details there for the giveaway. Uh, you can also reach us via email. That is hello at sexedshouldn'tsuck.com. Or you can reach us on our website, sexedshouldn'tsuck.com. If you feel like supporting the podcast in any way, shape, or form, um, you know, tell your friends. Give us a rating. Those things really help us a lot. Um, additionally, you can check out our Patreon. We have a few different tiers of options for supporting the podcast. Everything from $1 a month to more than that. <laughs> there are, you know, little gifties and things. Uh, and you can get your name shouted out on the podcast like this. Bill! <laughs> I don't know if that actually worked. Thank you, Bill. I just shouted. I probably just startled my roommates. <laughs> I hope I did. We'll see if they knock on my door. <laughs> thank you, Bill, for supporting the podcast. We appreciate you a lot. And finally, I want to say thank you to Kent for mastering our sound as he does. It's a much appreciated part of the podcast. Thank you, Kent. Uh, the next episode we have coming out is my friend Michael Timlin, who hosts the podcast Work Sucks. I know. Uh, I have an episode of his podcast. You can go listen to that if you look on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever that is there. Or listen to any of the other episodes. They're all good. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking to him next. And yeah, we only got like two or three more episodes left this season. It's been a long ass season. I'm ready for a break. <laughs> it's wild. Anyways, we'll see you next time. Love you. Love you.